Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 258 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Sophia Samatar. She's the author of the fantasy novels A Stranger in Alondria and The Winged Histories, and also the poetry editor for Inner Fictions, a journal of interstitial arts. And we'll be speaking with her today about her new short story collection, Tender. And now, here's our interview with Sophia Samatar. All right, so we're here with Sophia Samatar. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Okay, so your new book is a short story collection called Tender. So tell us a bit about how this book came together. This book came together over, um, I believe, about five years of writing short stories. And... Um, I never really thought of myself as a short story writer. I thought of myself as more of a novelist. Um, but I came to really love writing the short stories um, without thinking of them as a book. So when I wrote them, I just wrote them to write individual stories. And in fact, the idea of creating a book of short stories did not occur to me until um, my publisher, Gavin Grant of Small Beer Press, suggested it. He said, what about doing a short story collection? And I said, I don't have enough stories for a collection. And he said, I think you do. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you thank him in the acknowledgments. You say to Gavin J. Grant, who convinced me I had a, enough good stories to make a book. Yes. <laughs> I think it's, it's interesting that you, you weren't certain if you had enough good stories because you had three stories in this book that had appeared in Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy and all sorts of other anthologies and things as well. Um, that's true. Although, of course, when we were, um, when we had the idea and we're putting the book together, that was, uh, that was before, I think that was before either of the stories, um, or any of the stories were in Best American or be, before I, before I knew that. Um, but I think it's, it's less to do with the stories than sort of my own feeling that, um, yeah, that as I said, I'm sort of a natural, I see myself still as a natural novelist. And so it took me a bit of time to realize that, hey, yeah, I do have enough uh, short stories that I'm that I'm proud of to make a book. So when did you actually start writing the short stories? Because you started publishing them around 2012 or so, right? But when did you actually start writing your first short stories? Um, they were published very shortly after I wrote them. So I started writing short stories when I was in graduate school. Um, and I think it was around 2010 or 2011 that I started writing short stories. Um, and there were a couple of reasons for that. One was, um, so in 2000, oh, I'm going to mess up my years. Hmm. Uh, I'm so old. Uh, some, somewhere in there, um, I think it was 2011 that, that I, I signed the contract with Small Beer Press to publish my first novel, A Stranger in Alondria. And at that point, I was a complete unknown. I had not published anything anywhere. So we had two things coming together. One was, um, that I have this I, now I have a contract. My novel is coming out in two years, and no one has any idea who I am. Hmm. And actually, the other, let me, let me just say, because you actually walked up to Gavin at a convention, that's uh, right, completely cold, and just pitched him on publishing your novel, right? I did, I did, um, because I had had a lot of trouble. Um, well, not just trouble, but actual failure uh, finding an agent for a stranger in Alondria. So I had tried for five years to get an agent to help me to sell this book. And I got lots of very nice letters and they said things like, I love it. I love the setting. I love the language and so on, but I can't sell it. So once I felt that, you know, I, I mean, it was over a hundred agents, I'm sure that I queried and it just felt like I've run out and huh. there's, there's nowhere to go from here. So that's when I did, um, I was at Wisconsin in Madison, Wisconsin, um, wonderful convention. And I went up to the table and said to Gavin, so, well, first I bought a couple of books. <laughs> yeah, it's always a, it's always good, good, good strategy. That's very important. Always buy some books. Um, and then I said, so 
I've written this novel. And he was like, not, at least he didn't, if he was enthusiastic, he hid it well. Let me put <laughs> it that way. He wasn't, you know, kind of, oh, great. Um, but he said, go ahead and send me three chapters. So I did. And that's how that got started. Um, so then I found myself contract in hand, um, but no, no readers. I didn't blog. I didn't, I didn't have any kind of presence anywhere. Uh, so that was one thing that made me think, huh, maybe it would be a good idea to try to write some short fiction and have it published so that at least my name will, will kind of ring a bell for some people when this novel comes out. And the other part was that I was in graduate school and I had to write academic papers and I had to write a dissertation, which is basically a book. You know, it's this big 200 page thing. And so it was too hard to concentrate on writing a novel at that point. And so short fiction was a really great way for me to continue writing fiction uh, while I was in school. And so it sounds like you started selling those stories pretty quickly. I did, although uh, there were definitely some that did not sell for good reasons. <laughs> and I remain grateful to the editor's who rejected them because otherwise I'd be really embarrassed. But yeah, I, I would say um, through trial and error um, and also working with a writing partner for the first time, someone that I had met at WISCON, um, her name's Catherine Kohler. She's a great um, science fiction and fantasy writer. And we started meeting every week and and kind of exchanging fiction and that was really really helpful so yeah it didn't take too long so those stories that you that were rejected for good reason what why do you think that they weren't successful i think they were unsuccessful uh if i if i can think back through them there was one that was like one of the very early ones it wanted to be a novel and it was just massive and it did, and it unfolded at a novel's pace so that, you know, it just felt weird. Like you're reading pages and pages of this thing and nothing's happening and it's just all set up. And so that was one problem. Others were, um, they, they kind of, I, I, it was hard for me to learn or to teach myself how to structure a short story in such a way that the reader would understand what was going on, but I would not get bored with explaining to the reader what was going on. And to do all of that, you know, in a, sh in a short story, it's just a much smaller canvas, of course, than the novel. So you don't have as much space to put things beside each other and allow, you know, kind of allow the reader's understanding to unfold with the story or have them go along on this journey. It's like they you're going to lose people if they're um, either you're doing too much explaining and they're bored or there's not enough and, and they're lost. Yeah. I mean, in the acknowledgements here, you mentioned Karen Joy Fowler, Nella Hopkinson and Kelly Link as influences. Were you kind of reading short stories by them and kind of seeing how they did it? I was absolutely. And um, in particular, so one of my first short stories um to be published was Selkie Stories Are for Losers. And for that story, and I would say that that story was a real turning point for me. It was where I felt like, yeah, I get it. I understand short fiction. I understand how this works and I understand how to structure a story. And that happened through really intensive reading of Karen Joy Fowler's short story, King Rat, which is a wonderful story that manages to bring together um, the story of a, a character, uh, a young girl, and something that happens to um, to a young man that she knows, and also a sort of mythology and this idea of King Rat. It's a it's a beautiful story, and those were some of the elements that I was working with in uh, in Selkie stories are for losers, and I remember making diagrams of Karen's story, hmm. sort of, you know, working it out on paper and making maps of when is she bringing in, when is she introducing these different threads and how is she then tying it together at the end? And I used that to, as a, as a teaching tool to teach myself how to structure that story. 
I mean, the Selkie stories for losers is definitely a story that, I mean, I heard about. It got a lot of buzz. A lot of people were talking about it. Um, one review I saw sort of was suggesting that you were, this was a response to like a whole um, kind of like blossoming of Selkie stories in particular, and that you were kind of playing off that. Is that how you see that? Huh, that's interesting. Um, not really. I I would love to know what these other Selkie stories <laughs> are. I, you know, I'm thinking of um, Margot Lanigan, um, The Brides of Roll Rock Island. Is that what it's called? I think that's a Selkie novel, and I think it came out around the same time. But um, yeah, I'm not aware of this sort of um, Selkie punk <laughs> movement. <laughs> So, so, but was this, I mean, because the story does, the, the title sort of suggests that the story is um, self-aware in a way. Do you see it as kind of a genre aware sort of story? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And that's something that I am, I'm really interested in exploring is, um, and I think a lot of people who write, maybe especially fantasy, are interested in sort of these stories that are very old, um, folklore and mythology and uh, so, so we're interested both in the stories themselves as stories, and then also in the very extended life of these stories over time, and how they are, um, how how they continue to kind of transform and retain this ability to speak to our lives. And it sort of strikes me that as fantasy becomes more popular and more people are writing short stories and things, that we're kind of kind of getting into these creatures that would have been more obscure, I think, in earlier generations. And, you know, it's kind of like, well, we've kind of, we've done dragons and we've done elves and we've done, you know, werewolves and things. Let's get into some of these, like, maybe less explored kinds of creatures. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Although I will always, you know, again, part of, part of the, the character of these types of stories is that their life is very long. And it's very hard to exhaust them. So anytime I hear somebody saying, you know, maybe there's been too much of something like, oh, vampires, you know, vampires are over. I'm like, well, maybe for now. But, mm -hmm. you know, they are going to come back out of the grave at some point. <laughs> well, okay. So speaking of weird creatures, I was really struck by the story Walk Dog in this book. Could you talk a little bit about how the idea for the Walk Dog came about? Yeah, um, that's a very, that's actually quite an um, there's a lot of autobiography in that story, although, um, there's a, there's a, there's a painful event in that story that I'm happy to say, uh, is not in my experience and that I did not witness. It is imagined. Um, although it is the kind of experience, you know, it's, it's about, it's about a high school and it's about bullying. So it is something that happens all too often. Um, although that part was not in my personal experience, but the story is set in South Orange, New Jersey, which is where I'm from. And, uh, it, the names of the characters are, you know, um, names that, that recall people that I know or people that I went to school with. And I decided to create a mythological creature for South Orange, and <laughs> and that is Walk Dog. Right, and so this is kind of a, um, a, a some sort of dog-like creature that kind of shows up at your door at night and compels you to go on a walk with it, and you're never seen again or not seen again for a long time at any rate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. It calls you, and you leave the house and you just start walking and it's it, you know it's unknown after that your 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 fate is unknown you've just walked away with with it and i think that sort of comes out of um i mean my my neighborhood in south orange is i mean there's 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 nothing wrong with it but it is um you know, there's a, there's a certain amount of crime that happens, certainly much more than where I live now, which is in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Um, and so growing up, one of the things you did not do was walk around at night. That was something we didn't do. At night, you would stay in the house. If you were going to go somewhere, you'd go by car. So there was, um, there was a feeling that I grew up with as a kid of, um, a sense of danger that was associated with 
my own yard when it was dark and my own streets when they were dark. There was a story I think you told about your brother getting shot at or something like that. Yes, he he was shot actually. Um he survived. Um but yeah, he was he was shot in the leg on a bus at about 7:30 in the morning. Um he was going he was going from he was taking the bus from South Orange into Newark to go to Rutgers University, the Newark campus, which is where my dad was a professor for over 30 years. And, and my brother was going to school there at the time. And, um, yeah, there was an altercation with, uh, there was a young man on the bus who had, who was playing music really loud and people on the bus asked him to turn it down. Uh, they're going to work, you know, it's, it's like 7 a.m. and they didn't want this, this, all this noise. And, um, and, and he opened fire on, on the bus. So it pulled over and everybody ran. And, um, and my brother, uh, also got up and ran out of the bus and, um, they were on a, they were on a, um, a street. It wasn't a residential area. It was kind of a business area. So everything was closed, but there was a restaurant. There was a Chinese restaurant where the prep cooks were there and they kind of opened up the big gate and let the people from the bus flee and run and, and take shelter in there. So my brother ran in there with everybody else. And on the bus, he'd been sitting on his jacket and he grabbed his jacket and, and got up and ran off the bus. And then when he was standing, kind of catching his breath inside this, the kitchen of this restaurant, he looked down and saw that there was blood on his jacket. And he was like, what? And then he looked down and there was a hole in his leg. And he said at that point, when he saw the wound, he was like, ah, then it was really, really painful. But he actually, you know, because of the adrenaline, yeah, well, he hadn't even realized that that had happened until he saw it. Wow. That's because because I heard you say that you were in you were teaching in Sudan at the time. Which I was, was at war and that you actually it, maybe it was safer than New Jersey. It, well, my dad was really concerned, actually, that I was working in South Sudan and I was working in this war zone. And I was like, Del, that's my, my brother. I was like, Del is the one who got shot and he lives with you, dad. <laughs> like you live in the same house. So, you know, um, I'm not sure that, that, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, we can, we can, we can sort of trick ourselves into, uh, a sense of, invulnerability or, um, or, or complete safety by living in certain places. But honestly, you know, it, there's no place that's, that's completely safe. Right. So, and so Walk Dog does a really good job of capturing that, that sense of just uneasy menace, I guess, that you experienced growing up. And you said that it's, it's kind of an autobiographical story. Is that from the, cause I know you, you mentioned you were a teacher too. Um, do you identify with the teacher character in that story? I do very much so. You know, the, the, the story is in the form of a school paper that is written by, um, by a girl who's a high school student. And she's writing to her teacher really in the footnotes and kind of in the corners of this essay. And she's saying, you know, you're the grown up. Why don't you help us? Like high school is terrible and hard and really awful things are happening. And you're just up there kind of teaching class like everything's normal. And, um, yeah, that's, that's a, a feeling that I often have as a teacher. There's a weird, it's hard to balance, you know, what's the material that I need to cover and the stuff that I need to get through in order to do my job correctly. And then when is it time to just really drop that material and say, you know, there's something going on that my students want to talk about or sometimes, you know, there are things that are happening in life that are so much more important than me, you know, getting them to, to, to do this material or to do this, this curriculum. Well, right. In the story, it starts out in kind of an objective, more academic tone and then gets really, really personal as it goes. And I'm guessing mm -hmm. that's an experience you must have had as a teacher that something kind of starts out on the surface and then goes to places you weren't expecting from student papers. Yeah, it's something, um, I actually really like when it happens. I think, 
Um, there are times when, I, to me, it's a sign that a student has been able to really possess the assignment and take it in the direction that they need it to go. I always find that really exciting. Although it was funny, you know, when we, when we, um, when the, the story was first published, um, the proofreader actually was a teacher and went through and corrected the character's oh, spelling. No. <laughs> <laughs> there, are lots of, there are lots of spelling mistakes, you know, yeah. there, well, I, there. I had that same reaction when I started. I'm like, oh, I saw a typo. And then I, and then I realized, oh, wait, no, it's supposed to be like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was kind of funny. So, the, so this, the, the story also had that experience of being corrected as a paper. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Well, so, so yeah, so you mentioned that you were teaching in, in Sudan and you were, te- you were also in Egypt, I think. Um, mm-hmm. a- and there's a, one of the stories that's called an account of the land of witches. And there's a really memorable sequence in it where it's told from the point of view of a student who gets, uh, who gets, she's on a, a research trip and gets stuck and can't get back to the United States. Yeah. I was just curious if you've ever had that experience or if you know people who have or. Yeah, I haven't had that experience, but it was based on the experience of one of my colleagues. When I was in graduate school studying Arabic literature, um, there were a whole bunch of us I, who were, who were teaching assistants. Um, and we, we would teach the first year Arabic class. There were a bunch of sections of that class, of course, because it's a, a pretty popular language right now. Um, so there were, I think, you know, seven or eight of us who were teaching and, um, and, I was the only, I was the only American who was teaching one of these classes and the others were from, you know, Morocco, Algeria, Jordan. Um, and there was a Jordanian student who got stuck. Um, just like what happens in the, in the, in the story and account of the land of witches, he went home for, um, for break. He went home for the, for the winter break and then, uh, and, all of his papers, as far as everybody understood, were, were perfectly in order, but he got stuck and he, he couldn't come back and he was, he was stuck for a couple of months, I believe. So, you know, people were, were covering his, his class. Um, I think it might have been somewhere around six weeks that it, you know, uh, until he got everything, uh, sorted out and could come back. So, so yeah, the story does speak to that kind of, um, you know, as students, we're, we're all equals in our, in our intellectual passion. And we're, we're all equally invested in this endeavor of scholarship and learning and studying. But, um, but we, we enter it in very different ways. And, and you're, uh, unfortunately, people's intellectual passion does not always protect them, or it's not always, um, you know, it's not always understood. Now, were you were you imagining what that must have been like for him, or had you talked to him at any length about exactly what had been going through his mind during that period? Yeah, I had talked to him, and honestly, it was you know, it's probably it probably it was more difficult for the the character in my story because she is she is you know she's in a in a place where there's a lot of unrest and where um and where there's violence, and he wasn't. I mean you know, he was at home. It was, it was very, uh, he was very anxious, obviously, because he was a PhD student and he really wanted to get his degree, which I'm happy to say he eventually did. Um, but I think, you know, he, he wasn't, he wasn't going through that experience in a place that was in any way, um, where, where he felt threatened or at risk. And the character in my story is, so the stakes are sort of higher for her. Yeah. Okay, so so you mentioned yeah that you you speak Arabic and and so on and so there's this story um the the tale of Malia and Mahub and the white footed gazelle mm-hmm. and it's sort of it's it's inspired by this um, tales of the marvelous and news of the strange. Could you talk about that? Yeah, this is a wonderful um, a wonderful text. It's a collection of shorts of, of tales of stories. Um, from that that I believe were collected and written down in in the medieval period, very similar in lots of ways to the famous stories of the Arabian Nights or the Thousand and One Nights, but um, they simply weren't. I mean, they'd never been translated before until I think it was like just two years ago um, that the first English translation was produced, 
And they're, they're wonderful, exciting, um, stories that I, I, you know, I hope they will become better known. Why do you think that they were not as, like, you, you, you raised this in the story. Why was the fate of this collection of stories so much different from The Thousand and One Nights? Yeah. I, my understanding is that fewer copies of this collection of stories, um, have survived. There, I think there's like one in Istanbul or something, but I don't, I don't want to, um, misspeak or be wrong about this, but my understanding is that it, you know, there were just not as many versions in circulation that survived. And so it kind of sat there. Um, and now, you know, people have, um, or there's, there's outside interest in the stories. And so they were published. I mean, from reading them, would you say that they would kind of fit into the Thousand One Nights or are they distinctly different in any way? Oh, I think they would very much fit in. Very much so. Yeah. Interesting. So um, you also, in the story, there's this part that's kind of interesting where you say, um, this is the narrator speaking, but lately it seems to me that there is such a thing as a wonder curse, like the literary version of a resource curse. Um, mm. Could you talk about what, could you just talk about that? Yeah. So this was my, I'm, I'm trying to address a couple of different things in that story. And, um, I would say this is, this is actually a, a problem or an issue that has come to occupy my attention more and more. And it has to do with enjoyment and pleasure. Um, um, so uh, those of us in genre fiction, we know, uh, and fantasy and science fiction specifically, we know that we are, we are writing in a, in a genre of pleasure and of wonder and excitement. Um, and at the same time, at least for me, I feel the necessity to be true to the world, which is not always, um, which is not all about pleasure and enjoyment. And sometimes in, our consumption of fantastical stories and our excitement and, and that very, um, very valuable wonder and pleasure. It's easy to lose sight of, um, of some of the realities of the world that we live in. And in particular, it's easy to lose sight of the connections between those realities and the very stories that we're reading. So in this piece, um, the tale of Mahliya and Mahub, I'm, um, I'm sort of trying to pay attention to both of those things at the same time. So I'm trying to say, here are these wonderful stories. They remind us a lot of, um, you know, Aladdin and Alibaba and, and these great adventure stories. Uh, at the same time, these stories come out of particular places in the world. Um, and there, there is a relationship between the way that we see these stories as exotic and, and so on. And the way that we can sometimes, um, ignore, uh, marginalize or mistreat people from those countries. I don't know if that makes sense, but, but these are kind of the different pieces that I was trying to work with in the same story. I, I mean, you go on to say, um, it's as if having once tasted the magic of the East, visitors become determined to extract it at any cost. Mm. Um, could you say, I guess, maybe a little bit more, what is the cost? Like, what, um, it, it, what is the downside for the region of having these stories, I guess? Yeah, I think... Um, I think for the downside... I mean, if you, if, if anybody who really wants to know should read Edward Said's Orientalism, because that's the book that, and it's, it's a classic now. And that's, that's the book that really lays out the connection between, um, Western views of the East as a place of magic and especially of these unchanging traditions, right? So there's a connection between that and, um, and, Western foreign policy, um, and he's writing especially about, you know, 
he he's really taking a very broad historical view. So he's talking about centuries of 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 a relationship of conflict and conquest, where you know the West Western countries pre, uh, perceive these traditional magical Eastern places as um, incapable of any kind of real modernity and as incapable, therefore, of self-determination and of being nations in their own right. That's interesting. So do you think that there's anything that fantasy as a community can do to try to avoid falling into that, um, that trap? I am not sure. I think it's very hard. I mean, what I did in this story was to, to sort of really interrupt and break apart the magical narrative and sort of expose its edges. Is that the solution? I honestly don't know. Because I do think that it, you know, probably dampens the pleasure a little bit. I think it's very hard to have both. So I don't... um at this point, I, I would say I don't have a solution to this issue, but I do think that it's extremely important. And I do think that a kind of cavalier, um, you know, oh, I'm just going to, you know, grab things from around the world and throw them and mix them up in my wonderful fantasy. And I'm going to have magic carpets. And I'm going to, you know, if you do all of that eh, without thinking about um, what is happening in those places now and and the relationship between the place you are in and what is happening in those places now if you're not doing that thinking and if it's nowhere visible in the work that you're doing then i i do think it's kind of um um weak at best yeah that's really interesting um there's another story that kind of is sort of in, in something of a similar vein called Meet Me in Aram, where mm. I guess Aram is a city that's mentioned in the Quran, if I have that right. Mm -hmm. Could you say a little, like, a little bit more about just Aram for people who aren't familiar with it and why you wanted to use it in your story? Yeah, well, it's a it's a story with a lot of uh, kind of legend attached to it. It's a it's a lost city. It's it's known as the city of the pillars, um, and it's you know it. it there's not that much to kind of cling to about it that's very solid, but it, it, um, the, the word has come, um, Iram, the city of the pillars has, has come to be, um, to stand in for the idea of this, of this lost city, this lost place. And there are stories about, you know, maybe you might, you might be able to come across it, um, and then it would disappear again. Uh, it, there's a mirage-like quality to, uh, in, in the kind of, um, uh, the legends and stories that have grown up around that brief mention of this place. And so then how did you go from that, sort of that legend to making a short story out of it? Well, this is an interesting short story in that it is basically all true. Um, this story, is almost total autobiography. Um, and it becomes fantasy really just through the presence of this magical lost city, which the narrator, the, the I voice, um, kind of travels to this city it's not clear exactly how but sort of in dreams and and visions and for me that lost city comes to stand in for everything that is lost and that includes people that i have lost and it includes relationships that i have lost and languages that i have lost or never had right so so the this this line about my my uncle was shot and killed in his bed that's autobiographical yes was that political or is there is there anything i don't know if you want to talk about it but um it, it was not as far as we know politically motivated although it's also it, it's just it was a it was a there's a lot of mystery around it i mean i i myself don't understand exactly what happened um beyond the fact that we 
lost him. And, um, and yeah, I guess, um, there are some things I think that we write about because we don't want to talk about them. You know, that's, that's where they appear. They appear in stories. Right. You also, you say, um, there's a part where you say, my father didn't go to the party. My father went somewhere else. I don't know where. Perhaps he was helping to draft the Somali constitution. Once someone asked if I thought he worked for the CIA, I said, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Sounds like he was quite a prominent figure. Um, he was. He was. He was a very prominent figure. And that those, of course, are, I mean, what's true about that passage is not that he, you know, drafted a constitution or worked for the CIA, <laughs> but it's that it's that those were things that people would ask me that people would ask me about him. Yeah, he was, um, he died about two years ago. Um, he was a scholar of African history, specifically um, history of the Horn of Africa and, uh, and Muslim Africa. And uh, yeah, definitely um, a, a very important figure in his field. And he was, he was, I, I, I would, I guess he traveled to Somalia a lot and was involved in things that were going on there. He traveled a lot. Yeah, he did. Um, I mean, in, in later years, uh, he didn't go to Somalia, um, or didn't go often. Um, but he did, he, he did a lot of traveling. Yes. I mean, I'm just kind of curious. I mean, in the United States, Somalia, when you hear Somalia, you think of just Black Hawk Down and Captain Phillips and things like that. I'm just curious what, did he think, or what do you think about how Somalia is viewed in the United States? Well, I think we could do better than Black Hawk Down and Captain Phillips, especially Black Hawk Down. Um, so say, say your question again. It's what do I think about how Somalia is viewed in the United States? Or portrayed in popular culture in the United States, yeah. Yeah, well, it's not great, is it? I mean... <laughs> um, I think there's, there are, there are a lot of stories that, um, either are, it's not, I don't even think it's that the stories are not being told, but it's, um, it's that the stories are not being recognized or, um, people are, you know, the stories that are becoming popular are, of course, the ones that are uh, a big spectacle and very sensational and are going to work well on the big screen, right? Um, but those are not by any means the only or even the most interesting stories. I would point to um, a book called Fairy Tales for Lost Children, which is a short story uh, collection by Dirie Osman, who's a wonderful um, writer, British Somali writer. Um, and there are others. I mean, if you just like look for, for Somali writers um, and, and artists, you know, you'll find them. And I think, um, I think that's the best place to go. I'm kind of curious what, what if any sort of fantasy and science fiction scene is there in some of these countries that you've had connections with like Somalia or Sudan or Egypt? You know, it's a little, it's, I've had this, this kind of, my life has been chopped up in different sort of pieces and sections. And it, it just happens that during the years, about 12 years when I was working in Sudan and Egypt, I wasn't actually in any kind of science fiction and fantasy scene myself. All of that happened later for me after I came back to the U.S. So while I was there, I didn't have the chance to investigate a lot. But I certainly know that, um, at least in Egypt, there have been, I mean, there's, there's always been a, a lot of, um, popular fiction, and that would include, um, especially science fiction. But lately there's been, um, maybe uh, a little more going on on the translation side so that things are becoming a bit more available to English readers. Um, I'm thinking of the book Utopia, which unfortunately I do not recall the author's name, but it came out a few years ago. And then recently another book called The Q by Basma Abdelaziz was, um, that is a kind of a dystopian fiction that was um, published in Egypt and then translated and is a very interesting book. 
And the, the Utopia title you mentioned, that was from Egypt or where was that from? That was from Egypt, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so hopefully if you, I'm afraid there are a lot of things called Utopia, but if people maybe just search <laughs> for right. Utopia Egypt, maybe they can find it. Yeah. Um, I also really want to ask you about this story. It's called Request for an Extension on the Clarity. Mm-hmm. Um, could you just talk a little bit about where that story came from? Yeah, that's my Afrofuturist story. Um, that is the story. I, I, you know, I feel it's, it's really the only story I've written that is connecting with, um, with Afrofuturist ideas in a kind of, um, very direct and clear way. Um, and Afrofuturism is kind of a, a fantastical, and science fictional mode that interests me a lot. It is, um, it's hard to sum up, but I would say, um, it has to do with the future. It has to do with Africa and the African diaspora. And it has to do with a connection between, um, different time periods. So between the present, the past, and the future. So even though it's called Afrofuturism, for a lot of the artists working in this area, and this includes, you know, you, I mean, you can include writers, you can include um, musicians, um, and and um, and also visual artists and filmmakers. What's important is, is that you are not going to be able to imagine a viable future unless you are sort of incorporating the past and drawing on the past. So it's a very, very interesting, um, kind of philosophy as well as artistic practice. And what interested in me, what interested me when I was writing that story, Request for an Extension on the Clarity, was the idea of, um, of, of circles and of a kind of cyclical time. Because when you have, um, this idea, this philosophical idea that we are, that we are looking at a way of being which does not, um, proceed according to linear time, right? So we, we are, we are thinking about the future. We are also thinking about the past. We are, we are not necessarily um, separating those things. We're, we're trying to integrate those, those pieces in our thinking. So you get this kind of idea of a circle, right? That you go back to the past and then you go forward to the future and back to the past. And that I, I found a really interesting, um, concept to work with in fiction because one of the things that we expect from fiction is that it has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and you're going to, you know, go through it and you're going to get a story. So sort of the challenge that I had set myself with, um, with that story is that I've got a character who is on a kind of satellite orbiting the earth and she's, she's like a janitor and maintenance worker basically. And she's just going in circles. You know, she doesn't have she doesn't have a lot of, um, exterior drama. What she has is, is memory and an internal story. And so the challenge then was, you know, is, is that enough of a story or is this just going to be like the story itself? Hmm. It's just, we're going around in circles and it's boring, you know? Well, but that seems to be something that's true of a lot of, a lot of the stories in this book that they're less about what happens after the beginning of the story and more about how we got to the beginning of the story? Huh. That's an interesting thought and, and very possibly true. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I, I could give some examples, I guess, but I did want to ask you too about that story because there's this really interesting, the protagonist when she was younger was really into this, these sort of, I don't know what you call them fringe writings or something about exploring this um, African past of, um, super advanced technology and things. Is that something that you've delved into yourself? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, that's another example, just like with, um, with Selkie stories are for losers, you know, where you have the story I'm writing and then you also have the, this, the mythology or the older story that informs my story. And it's kind of 
what I'm trying to do is take a look at the relationship between this character that I'm writing and these kind of formative or transformative stories. So yeah, I have this character who, um, is a lot like me. Again, it's pretty, pretty, uh, you know, uh, the, the construction of the character has, there's some autobiography in there. And there are things in that story that happened to me too. Um, for example, at one point that the character's remembering when she was in college and, um, and she said something critical about the discipline of anthropology. She sort of makes some comment about, you know, how, um, how anthropology or how anthropologists, um, looked at African cultures and how this was, you know, not always a, a positive experience for all concerned. And, uh, and her teacher kind of takes her to task for that. Um, and that, that's something that, that is in my experience. So, so what do you do then as a student? You know, you're, you're trying to study an area because you don't know about it. So she is African American, but she doesn't, she's never been to Africa. She doesn't know anything about it. Or she knows very little. She knows what she can find out from school. So she does research. And if you're interested in, in, in an area that has been, um, kind of, you know, shoved to the, to the corners in an academic context or just studied badly, you know, just, just plain old, like studied poorly and written about sort of poorly, not always, but, you know, in, in quite a few cases. Well, what do you do as a student? Well, you start reading anything you can find about that place. And maybe you start reading kind of weird stuff that you found on the internet. And, and that's what happens to that character. I mean, what do you make of that? That you, you relate this thing about the doggone people and Sirius B? Yeah. Like, what do you make of that, um, story? Oh, well, that's, I mean, that's, that's, uh, a really interesting reality. I mean, Dogon astronomy is, is absolutely fascinating and, and not, um, I mean, certainly, you know, I haven't read all about it that there is to read. There's actually a massive amount, um, of, of research that has been done on, on that, um, kind of, uh, on their astronomy. And it's still, you know, there are still some things that are, that are very hard to explain. How did they know the things that they knew? Right. But because sort of the idea is that they, this, the, the doggone know that Sirius is a binary star, mm -hmm. uh, which you can't know unless you have a telescope. Mm hmm. And, and so did they have telescopes or, you know, how did they, I mean, if you get into really sort of fringe, um, communities, they'll start saying, well, they were visited by aliens and the aliens told them about it. Yes. Um, I mean, that's how I first came across this. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the same for my character. And she's, she's thinking about those, um, those aliens or she's thinking about those figures of Dogon mythology as aliens from outer space. Right. I mean, I think I just, just, from a skeptical standpoint, it looks like the one of the um, possible explanations is just that they could have picked this up from people who uh, um, people who visited them who did have access to telescopes and things. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Again, I would have to I would have to do a lot more reading about that, and and you know, um, there would be a lot of work to be done to discover what was the likelihood of that happening and, you know, sort of who was there and what were the relationships and what were the connections that would have actually enabled that to happen. I, I don't know. I don't have any idea. Right. But for purposes of your story, I guess it's more about the, the tension or the interplay between this imagined Africa and the experienced Africa. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. And, and also the, I mean, it's sort of about the, the role of Africa in, um, in a certain really African American consciousness or that, that strangeness of feeling connected to a place in a very special way and also very disconnected. Yeah. All right, so we're running a little short on time, so I, I do definitely want to ask you about Fallow, which is this long mm. original piece in this book. Uh, it's apparently it's inspired by a, a historical event. Could you talk about that? Well, yeah, I mean, 
Okay, so this is my this is my Anabaptist in space story. <laughs> um and Anabaptist would be kind of a, a a broad term for um a bunch of different peace churches including Amish and Mennonites. Um and I am Mennonite myself, but also like many Mennonites have Amish roots if you go back a, a couple of generations. So, um yeah, so it's Anabaptist in space. Um and I wrote it while sort of in the middle of research and writing that I've been doing on another book. And that other book that I'm working on now is, um, it's, it's a historical more than a, than a fantastical text. And it is based around a trek, a migration of Mennonites from Southern Russia to, to Central Asia, to what's now Uzbekistan in the 1880s. So that, that migration was very much in my mind as I was thinking about this migration of this collection of Anabaptist groups to another planet, which is what happens in Fallow. Um, however, I would say, I, I wouldn't, I don't think I would say that for me, the, the story is based on that specific historical event, but it's more based on a long history in which these Anabaptist groups of various kinds have, because they don't go to war, um, have sort of moved from place to place or been forced to move from place to place. So they would move in order to, to, you know, live kind of simply and in their own, um, in their own way, um, and preserving their own culture and language and education systems and so on. And then very often what would happen historically, um, is that they would be um, facing conscription. So they would be looking at being conscripted into an army. And at that point, you know, that's where they drew the line. And it was, nope, we're not going to do that. So we are leaving. We're going to migrate somewhere else. And what's happened in Fallow is that they have run out of places on Earth where they can go. They have run out of places where they are going to be able to preserve the right not to participate in warfare. So their only choice is to try outer space. It looks like you spoke at some sort of Anabaptist uh, conference or something, crossing the line, women of Anabaptist traditions encounter borders and boundaries. Yeah, that's actually coming up um, in a couple of weeks. I am working on writing my talk for that conference right now. <laughs> Okay, so it's in the future. Okay, it's in the future. Well, it's that's in very the future. Appropriate for a science fiction podcast that it's in the future. Yes, yes. Um. So, does is your talk related to the story at all? Um, my talk is related. It's not related to Fallow so much um, as it's related to the book that I'm working on now. Um, in terms of yeah, these, um, this group of Mennonites crossing borders, crossing from, from Russia into Central Asia. I mean, one thing obviously about the story is that it is a kind of dystopian story. It's not a fun place to live um, in mm -hmm. this community. Is that just uh, of dramatic necessity or is there anything more to say about that kind of society not having, not being all, all positive or something? Oh, Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, it's a human society, right? So, um, so it's not going to be a hundred percent, uh, happy and positive, however much people are trying to make it that way. Yeah. I think, um, in fallow, it's interesting, you know, so often, um, what science fiction and fantasy can do for us is, is to, to really put things into very stark relief, you know, to really, um, to accentuate the characteristics of a situation so that they become sort of unavoidably urgent and pressing. And that, that, that forces us to, to look at things in a new way. And, um, and it makes it hard for us to ignore maybe some things that are easy to smooth over in daily life. And in Fallow, I'm looking at several elements um of living in um well my experiences with Mennonite communities and so there's a side that is extremely loving um there's a side that is 
extremely valuable, I think. I mean, to me, there, there is, um, the, the, um, the imperative for nonviolence, uh, is just, is amazing to me. And, and, um, and incredible that it, that, that, uh, that it's been preserved for so long. But then there's also, there are also problems that come with living in that, in, in kind of a closed or a, an isolated community or a community that perceives itself as isolated. And, um, and all of those things come into play in fallow. So certainly there are wonderful things. There are, there are admirable things about these people who have left planet Earth because they refuse to participate in war and have taken up residence on this very hostile planet where they have to live underground. And it's, you know, it's, um, it's extremely difficult to live there. In the process, some, along with their, their, their positive qualities being exaggerated, some of their negative qualities of a sort of, um, almost oppressive group identity and group practice, those things have been exaggerated as well. And of course, the characters in the story find themselves in the middle of that. Right. I mean, the story sort of suggested to me that nonviolence is not actually um, tenable, that you can only choose between different forms of violence or different levels of violence. Yeah, well, I think that would be the... Um, I think that that would be the grimmest assessment. <laughs> um, but I think there are... There, there are in the, in the characters in the story, there are these sort of flickers of hope for other possibilities. I think especially in the, in the main narrator, but also in, in some of the characters that she encounters that there, there are, or there could be, there could be another way of doing things. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, Fallow, speaking of what we were saying earlier, I think Fallow is another good example of a story that is more about what happened before the beginning of the story than what happens after the beginning of the story, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. It's a character who's looking back on people that she's known. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you, if you read the, um, the review of this book in the Los Angeles Review of Books. But the reviewer says that this is a relentless, challenging, and hypnotic collection. It can be a difficult text, demanding a high level of engagement. Do you think of your writing as being challenging and demanding? Not to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, um, I write what I enjoy, and I think that it is, uh, I mean, to me, it's, it's quite a pleasure. But uh, yeah, I've certainly been told that and this is you know not just the short stories but actually even more the novels a stranger in alondria and the winged histories that um you know it's hard it has a lot of words in it i mean i don't know it's a book it has a lot of words in it yes guilty as charged because <laughs> i mean i certainly um you know as i was reading the book i started underlining all the um uh would you call it the you know sort of the backstory stuff the the world building stuff because it would be kind of just sort of snuck into places mm -hmm. and as oh I want to make sure I'm getting all this because uh, you know I want to be able to piece all this together. Yeah was was it fun? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> yeah no it was a lot of fun. I mean it was kind of reminding me of um like Gene Wolfe's Book of the New Sun or Casuisha Girls Never Let Me Go these stories where the character is telling you the story from their point of view and the stuff that to them is obvious is stuff they don't talk about. And so you kind of need to like read between the lines and say, wait, what is, what is actually going on here? That's right. That's right. Well, I really, um, I, I, I hate the feeling that, uh, a character is kind of talking to me to make me know something because the author wants me to know that thing about the world. Um, I, I, definitely prefer a sort of immersive experience in the fantasy and science fiction that I read where, um, yeah, there, there where characters do not feel the need to say things that are, are to them should be completely, uh, run of the mill and normal. And they wouldn't have any need to remark on those things. Yeah. There was also one of the, um, 
One of the reviews from Chris Abani, he says, Sophia Samatar writes with a clear feminist slant. I was just curious if you see yourself as writing with a clear feminist slant. Um, yeah, I think it's pretty clear. <laughs> I, I think so. Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting that I think all, almost all these stories are written from the point of view of female protagonists. Yes. Is that something, yeah. is that something you, you think about or is that just sort of how, how the stories come out or? Um, it's how the stories come out. I was actually, it was interesting to me when I went back and, and started looking at the stories to include in the book. Cause as I said, I, I hadn't written them thinking that they would ever become a book. And so when I was going and sort of collecting and putting them together, it was interesting to realize, first of all, that I really love first person. Hmm. Um, so I was able to have 20 pieces that are all in first person. There's something about the immediacy of that voice and the feeling of a narrator telling you something and that, you know, there's an urgency to it. Like, this is my story and I need to tell this to you right now. Um, so that was an interesting uh, kind of connection between the stories. And because my stories, I think, do... And, and more and more, they, they always have from the beginning had kind of bits of autobiography in them. There's a lot of stuff in them that has actually happened to me. Um, but, uh, but in more recent times, I've, I, they've become even more that way. And so that also makes it feel natural to me to have them, you know, in the voices of female characters because I, because their, their, um, aspects of my own experience are going in there. Yeah. Well, a lot of these stories have multiple first person mm -hmm. um, narrators because there are stories within stories or things like that. Yes. Yes. Which is something that I really love and has been a part of all my work. Uh, it's even I, I can I get to do even more with that in the novels, that sort of um, stories within stories. But it, it happens in the short stories as well. So a story like the um, oh, the witches. Uh, uh, an account of the land of witches. Mm -hmm. Do you do you do you sit down at the beginning and say this is going to have like five first person narrators? It's going to go from this to this to this, or do you write the first one and then kind of work it out from there? With that particular story, I mean, it depends. Uh, different stories work differently, but I usually have a sense of who the different voices are. So with that story, I knew that I wanted the the kind of back and forth and an argument between. Um, between the characters. So the first section I knew would be an account of the land of witches. And then we were going to have a character who completely disagreed and wrote a refutation <laughs> of the account of the land of wishes, witches. And then another character who writes the refutation of the refutation of the account of the land of witches. Um, so I knew that much, but actually there's a, there's a, there's a fifth section of that story. The final section was not part of my original idea with the story. That was actually a suggestion from my wonderful editor, Kelly Link, who said that with this, when the story was written with just the four sections, it, it, all the threads were tied up and it kind of ended very neatly and, and tightly and it was really compact, which, I mean, those are actually all good things in terms of short fiction. Um, but Kelly, who is actually the genius of short fiction, right? So if she says something, <laughs> you should listen to it. Um, she said, I want a sense that this is opening out again at the end. It's too, it's too neat. And so I said, okay. And so then I wrote this really weird ending and she said, wow, that was unexpected. And she liked <laughs> it a lot. Hmm. Yeah, it's pretty amazing to have Kelly Link editing your book. It's very amazing. And she is excellent at it. <laughs> Okay, there's just one other uh, review I want to read because, I mean, I think any author would kill to get this sort of review. But this person says, if a library came alive and spent 10,000 years walking up and down upon the earth, exploring and dreaming and falling in and out of love, it might write stories like these. Mm. Yeah, that's so. a nice one. <laughs> <laughs> so like that, that, yeah, that says it all. If, uh, you know, people go, go read these stories because, I mean, how can you not want to read these stories after hearing a blurb like that, man? <laughs> Um, all right. So just to wrap things up, I get, you mentioned your upcoming projects a little bit, but is there anything else you want to say about upcoming projects? Um, yeah, actually, I will say one other thing because I have a book coming out next year. 
Um, it is coming out with Rose Metal Press, which is an independent press that does uh, kind of hybrid text, and they do a lot of stuff with both art and writing. And that fits for my upcoming book, which is called Monster Portraits. It is a collaboration with my brother, Del Samatar, who is an artist, and he draws monsters, and he's incredibly gifted. Um, and I always knew that at some point, if I could get my work out there and kind of, you know, get to the point where it was not super hard for me to publish things, I knew that I wanted to do a book with Dell um, because his art is really, really magnificent. So what we did was that he drew, um, he did ink drawings of monsters, and then I responded to them with these kind of vignettes, short stories, prose poems. I mean, they're kind of a hard, they're short. That's what I could tell you. <laughs> they're somewhere between prose poetry and flash fiction. Um, and I responded to them and through it, this kind of story of um, monsters develops, which is also not surprisingly quite autobiographical. So Monster mm -hmm. Portraits, which is coming out in 2018, is actually the next thing that's coming up. That's great. No, it's always uh, really nice to have an illustration or something like that to write off. It really uh, is a lot so much better than just starting with a blank page. Yeah, I've never done it before, but it was really, it was, it was fantastic. Yeah. And then do you have any other stories coming up or um, articles or anything? I don't think so. I need a break. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we hope you uh, hope you get a get a break and uh, recharge those batteries. Thank and you so much. So I think much. we'll we'll wrap things up so you can uh, start getting rested up. So well, we've been speaking with Sophia Samatar about her new short story collection, Tender. So Sophia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Sophia Samatar for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it... Tell no one. Thank you for listening.